Hello, everyone, and welcome to Professor Jamerson's podcast. This is the first one for the fall semester 2020 for Sociological Theory, week two. We are talking about Theodore Adorno and one of his lectures about the nature of sociology and what sociology should be doing. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the first podcast of this fall semester. I uh, start with a little bit of music just to introduce things, but it's really just going to be sort of talking about um, our material for this week. And I want to try to keep these between 30 and 45 minutes long uh, so you don't get podcast fatigue, right, like Zoom fatigue. I want to keep these all in sort of manageable chunks of instructional material. Um, and so what I want to do, I'm going to sort of dive right into our lecture for this week or our reading for this week, uh, Lecture 2 by Theodore Adorno. This is from a book called Introduction to Sociology, um, written by him. Um, and, you know, before we kind of dive into the argument and the text itself, I do want to give you a couple of uh, contextual levels or, or a couple different types of background for understanding and reading this piece. And so the first kind of background, the first context that I want us to think about us reading this work is sort of the historical context in which it's written. And I'm looking at this book and comes out and this uh, this dates back to 1968. Um, and in 1968, uh, we're experiencing a lot of social unrest, not just in the United States, but also around the world. It's the height of the Vietnam War. Um, this is the height of the Civil Rights Movement. And this is uh, 1968 is the year that Richard Nixon gets elected on um, his famous tough on crime policy and he running as the law and order president. This is also when Nixon consolidates the Southern strategy of trying to get those Democratic voters in the solid South who had been voting Democrat ever since the Civil War. Remember, the Republican Party is the party of Lincoln. Ever since the Civil War, the South had always voted Democrat, no matter really who was running. And this is when Nixon gets together with George Wallace and is like, I can start to get that, that white Southern vote over to the Republican Party running on this platform of law and order. And so I just I just notice a lot of parallels, right, between between what's going on in 1968. It's a very divisive time. The Vietnam War was a bitterly divisive uh, moment for the American people. And and um and even though the death toll is not as much as the coronavirus, for example, um, we still have Americans dying every day for reasons that a lot of people didn't think uh, were necessary. And so I just want to kind of set the historical context in which this is being written. And now I want to talk a little bit more about Adorno himself. Adorno is a very famous neo-Marxist theorist uh, within sociology and within the social sciences. Um, much more famous, not um, for this work, but for an earlier work that he had written with another man named, um, uh, last name Horkheimer, uh, called The Dialectic of Enlightenment. And, and Adorno and Horkheimer and Herbert Marcuse, um, these are all really famous neo-Marxists from from Frankfurt, Germany, and they they were a group known as the Frankfurt School, and they originated what we call what we now call critical with a capital C critical theory. And if you want more information about this theoretical tradition, please look to chapter five in your textbook. Uh, Michelle Dillon does a pretty nice job here talking about that. I know um, I had to read chapter one. But if you want more context about this notion of critical theory, please go ahead and look over chapter five. I just want to um, briefly mention what they mean here by dialectic of enlightenment. When we talk about dialectics, this is a sort of a theoretical device that we'll be using throughout the course 
to um, make sense of sort of society's internal contradictions, how society seems to be one way, but in reality, the uh, it's very different. And this is something that Adorno thinks that sociology's job should be if we think about the reading for this week. Um, but a dialectic simply means a set of contradictory or oppositional or dualistic forces. Okay, that's basically what a dialectic means. And so earlier in their careers, Adorno had writes, writes about this phrase, the dialectic of enlightenment. Here's what Michelle Dillon has to say about this. Don't be intimidated by it. Right. In essence, it simply means that the Enlightenment, and when we talk about the Enlightenment, we're talking about four or five hundred years ago, right? The the Renaissance and the Reformation, um, this notion of of the individual coming to prominence within society itself, that the individual has freedoms, that the individual has rights. And this is sort of the foundation of what we call modernity or the modern age, which is something that early sociology and sociology still is very much concerned with. Life in modernity or the modern age. And what Dylan says here, it essentially means that the enlightenment, this, this, this flowering of individualism has become the contradictory opposite or the antithesis of what it promised or one-sided implementation of its promises by focusing on technical at the expense of normative rationality has resulted in our being less free. So what the argument basically is, is that individualism relies on a certain kind of rationality and the rationality for the individual coming to prominence in society is based on science. And so science becomes the language that we use to understand, interpret, and then mold society into a certain image. And so when we think about the Reformation and the Renaissance, we think about technological advances like the printing press. And, and advances in mechanics and advances in navigation for sailing ships to go off and colonize new worlds. And so going back to this notion, it's all, the Enlightenment was all about, on its face, the freedom of the individual. But what Adorno argues, looking back on the Enlightenment, you know, from the 20th century, is that the Enlightenment has, in fact, made us less free. Because as individuals, we are all, all only looking out for ourselves, and this results in less freedom overall. It actually goes back into um, Hobbes's arguments about life being nasty, brutish, and short. And so these are all the sort of uh, the sort of the genealogy of the text that you read this week, but the, the historical context and the context of the author as well. And and as we move forward in this course. I want you to think about both those contexts. Who is the author? You may want to like look up Durkheim on Wikipedia or something like that in a couple weeks. And, and what is the historical context in which these arguments are being made? And so before we dive into the text, I just want to kind of contextualize what you're reading. And then now we can get into more of the substantive arguments that Adorno is making here. So what we want to do when thinking about a dense text like this is maybe trying to reduce it down to its nuts and bolts. And once you start to do that, once you identify the main ideas, once you identify the problem that's being tackled here, um, then the other pieces you can start to make sense of and start to fit those together. And so uh, we want to look for these, these moments in the text that, that uh, mark, right. These, these important parts. Um, so here at the bottom of page 10, for example, he says, uh, ladies and gentlemen, 
I believe that something else is involved here. As you can see quite clearly from the example of Comte, we're talking about Auguste Comte, the founder of sociology as a scientific discipline. He says the problem of it is the problem of the general position of society in relation to politics. So I know I said we're not supposed to go off on political tangents, but that's not, I think, what, what Adorno is talking about here. He's What he's talking about with politics, he's talking about politics in a very abstract sense um, and, and politics as the means by which power relations get determined in a given social situation. This is the sort of abstract and most broad definition of politics that we get to. Okay, so here we're talking about politics. We're, we're talking about the, the structure of power relationships in society. And uh, so who's at the top, who's at the bottom? Uh, how is this arrangement maintained, for example? Okay, so that's what he's talking about when he's talking about politics here. And he goes on, I know, and here I'm addressing the real or imagined beginners among you, where right? he's lecturing to undergraduates, sociology undergraduates, that when a young person begins to study sociology, he or she often encounters a certain resistance at home because of the two syllables, socia, it is feared that sociology is ipso, eo ipso, something like an impregnation with socialism. And so by this point in 1968, sociology has been heavily influenced by Marx, right? Another founding figure in the discipline of sociology. And we've got, you know, all these Marxist college departments, right? And we still, we still see discussions of these, this nature in, in, um, in current political discourse. But then the Marxists were balanced out by the functionalists, right? And we had these two very different the viewpoints of, of understanding sociology and what sociology's role should be in society, right? Sociology, of course, is the study of society. Um, it is the broadest of all the social sciences, but what should sociology be doing within society? What is its role to use another sociological term in the society that has created it? And, and with, with Marxists and, and functionalists, for example, we have um, basically two competing viewpoints as to what that role should be. And this is the first sort of point that Adorno is going to be discussing and talking about in this um, short reading of his. Uh, Adorno is going to make some pretty, pretty slick moves here because he's going to discuss right, this functionalist versus this Marxist side of sociology, and he's going to eventually, he's going to argue in this piece that they have more in common than um, many outside observers and those sort of embedded within it would like to think. And he wants to sort of distinguish between this kind of sociology, the sociology uh, that's concerned with questions that lead to the introduction of a proper or better society, right? And this is, this is going back to one of Marx's famous quotes, the point of philosophy, or we can substitute sociology, the point of uh, sociology should not be to understand the world, it should be to change it. And, and if we take a purely scientific viewpoint about sociology, we're just thinking about observation and then gaining data, and then we can interpret that how we wish. Right, and, and we're not even really thinking about the changes that it may create within society. Um, a Marxist conceptualization is always about this notion of freedom, is always about this notion of liberation. And so we have these competing viewpoints, but 
he compares this right this this is the, the these competing viewpoints within this side um there's still another side of sociology and this is the side that he wants to move away from this is the dangerous side of sociology the elitist version of sociology and he's talking about and he talks about Vilfredo Pareto who um if you just look at his Wikipedia page or the Wikipedia page devoted to his work, he seems to be the uh, social thinker that, um, what did I write here in my notes? From what I understand, this, this guy Pareto provides much of the intellectual foundation for fascist rule in Italy, for example. So very much this notion of um, maintaining the power of the elites through the adulation and glory of the state and the state um, kind of takes control um, over the population through sort of false messaging. And this is where we get into the technological aspects of critical theory using mass media and radio, for example, in the 1930s, today we have the internet, um, to spread propaganda and misinformation and therefore maintain dominance for a specific group of people. And so he is sort of Sorry, I'm flipping back pages. And so what he's ultimately going to do is find similarities between the sociology of Comte and Marx and distinguish them from the sociology of a Vilfredo Pareto. And of course, Comte and Marx are still taught in schools. Vilfredo Pareto is sort of an artifact, a sociological artifact, um, an intellectual artifact of an earlier era at this point. But I think the sort of general divide that he's talking about the role of sociology um, it's still relevant for us, especially as we move forward in this class, thinking about all these different perspectives, right? Which one is right? Which one is wrong? Well, Adorno is going to argue here that none of them are right and none of them are wrong. And I think that's how we should be thinking about theory, especially in this course. Okay. And so we're going to, we're going to get to his definition of sociology in a little bit, but I want to get into sort of these different comparisons that he's making between Comte and Marx and Pareto. And so now I'll talk about his discussion of, or his comparison of Comte and Marx. And, and traditionally we think of Comte and Marx as being two very different thinkers. In fact, Marx held Comte's work in disdain. This notion of positivism, this notion that we can take an objective, a completely value-free stance toward understanding the social world and that that's going to be what's best for society. Karl Marx is like, no, we need to take action, right? We need to sort of educate the people and, and, and develop sort of a true consciousness about their relationship to the means of production. And Comte is like, no, we need to take a more systematic approach. And we need to kind of let the experts kind of handle this and, and engage in, in what Adorno calls here social engineering uh, to make society a better place. And Marx is like, no, 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 that's a top-down approach. You know, we need a bottom-up approach, right? We need to think about the, the workers and the masses. And so upon first glance, these two um, extremely influential thinkers in sociology would not seem to have very much in common, but this is, in fact, the argument that Adorno is making. He's all about sort of pointing out these contradictions and these dualisms and teasing out these points of agreement where we might not thought they would have existed before. And so he writes here that, on page 12, sociology, as it has come into being historically, has always had something almost technocratic about it, something of social engineering, a belief that if scientific experts who make use of certain methodological techniques are entrusted with the direct or indirect control of society, they will bring about the most balanced and stable possible state. 
And for Comp, this is what he wants. He wants equilibrium, right? And if you read, and, and, and Adorno talks here about how boring Comp's work is, the, the positivist philosophy, um, and I have read some of it, it is quite boring, but, but he uses this sort of biological analogy. He talks about, you know, how society is composed of these different parts, and each part of society is sort of like a different organ in a body, all serving a specific function, and, and all these organs need to be working sort of harmoniously together in order to provide equilibrium. And so for Comte, right, applying the principles of science to society, he sees society as being ruled by two forces, um, um, a dynamism and, and stasis, or, or, or equilibrium and change. And he wants to, and he kind of falls on the side of equilibrium. This is where he, he thinks that society would be better off if it was stable. Right? And Marx, of course, thinks almost the complete opposite. He thinks society is going to be, it will only reach a stable point once we have gotten rid of all of our revolutionary tendencies. And he sees this really as, a, as, a, as an inevitable historical progression. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But, but here's what he says here on page 13. It is, a various, it is a very curious fact which I point out to you only to show how deeply the contradiction that I've mentioned extends even into thinkers of the opposed tendency that even Marx, who took an extremely critical and dismissive view of sociology in general, and of Comte in particular, was infected by this ambivalence to the extent, extent that he actually shared the belief in the primacy of technology. And he did, and Marx thought that technology and technological progress would be the catalyst that would lead to a classless society. We won't need workers in factories if our factories are all populated by robots and the robots are doing all the work. And so, and so Marx, like Comte, is very much a technological utopianist, thinking that that technology will will end up end up being sort of this uh, this saving grace. Um, in, in lessening humanity's divisions and, and creating a more perfect place. And, and I don't know if they foresaw the internet or anything like that. Um, definitely pros and cons associated with that. And this is, and this is what Adorno is getting at. And, and Adorno, right, once again, writing from this 20th century position, looking at the rise of electronic media and how mass propaganda has, has, um, created a world where the elites are able to maintain and marshal their power. This is what he's concerned about. He's a German refugee, right? He was kicked out of Nazi Germany in the 1930s for his work. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if he's Jewish or not. Um, and so this is sort of his, the urgency of his context. And now, of course, he's writing at the height of the Cold War where, um, you know, sort of a, a, a mutually assured nuclear destruction was was a possibility on a daily basis. And so he's very concerned about all of these, these sort of these big issues and, and concerned with understanding them at their most abstract level. And this is something that people find very frustrating about Adorno's work is because he speaks in such an abstract language. And this is, um, I'm just telling y'all right now, what you, what you read for this week is, is Theodore Adorno at his most accessible and his most easy to read. The dialectic of enlightenment is not, is not as easy. So Adorno in criticizing Vilfredo Pareto, right? This is this is an attempt. Vilfredo Pareto's sociology is an attempt to 
um, understand society from a purely scientific sense and to argue that society itself is relatively unchanging. We only have these new inputs, but human nature itself is relatively unchanging and human nature itself is relatively chaotic. And therefore, human nature must be controlled. And right, and 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 if we think about how this plays into the development of fascism in Italy, as I said earlier, there could be no such thing as truth in Pareto's concept of sociology. Sociology itself takes on the chaotic and irrational aspect which enabled it, without great difficulty, to place itself in precisely this version at the service of Signore Mussolini, right, Benito Mussolini. In the tradition of his own country, where this idea had played a major role, Pareto took up once again the conception of the cyclical character of social motion, which goes back to Aristotle. In this sense, he clearly reflects the retrospective moment of sociology in the narrower sense, which I would say is preponderant today. According to this tendency, nothing different or new can exist, since society is and must remain nature in the sense of a blind repetition of seemingly natural processes. Um, we're not giving a whole lot of agency to human capacity to change, human capacity to empathize with difference, to accept difference, to incorporate difference into one's own worldview. There is, there's no truth to this. And so by definition, society, society must then be irrational and chaotic and then needs to be controlled really through scientific principles and through, um, in the case of fascism, extreme state uh, repression and domination. The character of what I call the science of survival has been inherent in sociology from the first, but the problem of survival is not to be solved today by social techniques and expert formulae in the way that it was imagined earlier, right? This idea that we can apply a formula to society and enact that formula into laws and then all of a sudden have a better society. That's not how this works. So he goes on, if you ask me what society really is, I would say that it must be insight into society, into the essential nature of society. We, we There are truths here. We're talking about, you know, truth is this abstract notion, what one person, you know, thinking about a terrorist, one person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter is there truth anywhere in there right can we talk about essential truths of society given all these different theoretical perspectives it is insight into what is but it is a critical insight and so if we want to get at what the truth of society is we need to look at two things and that it measures that it measures that which is the case in society sort of the reality and this is where quantitative research today plays a big role thinking about these larger trends, thinking about incarceration rates, thinking about um, divorce rates or marriage rates, like all of these um, things can be measured and we can learn from this. What is the case in society by what society purports to be? What does society think of itself? What is society's image of itself? And how do we get at uncovering that part of it? And so this is what sociology for Adorno should be in the business of doing, right? Comparing and contrasting what society really is versus how society represents itself, okay? And sociology is gonna operate kind of in this middle ground. And therefore it becomes this multifaceted thing. It becomes this, this almost this undefinable thing. 
as he goes on, I would ask you now not to write down this definition and take home what I have told you as a definition of society. It is an inherent characteristic of any dialectical theory, a theory that, that moves in opposites, that traffics in dualisms. And the theory I'm presenting to you here in fragments is a dialectical one that, as Hegel said, another famous philosopher from Europe, old dead white guy, cannot be reduced to an axiom. You can only find out what such a theory is or should be by doing it. And this is what we're doing in this class, right? We're doing theory in this class. We're immersing ourselves in it. Because of this, I would say that any isolated piece of social insight or criticism which has been put into practice outweighs all general comprehensive definitions. So that in failing to offer you such a definition, I am acting intentionally and from conviction. I am not offering you a definition because it is against my belief system to do that. Exactly this kind of definition, right? This is this it, it, definitional thinking embodies a traditional thinking that pins things down and organizes them in his words in terms of rigid concepts. And we, 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 and he's saying we don't want to be thinking in terms of these rigid concepts to criticize such thinking, uh, uh, rigid thinking is the business of the position I'm outlining to you here. On page 15, down at the bottom, and this is after he talks about his definition of society, right? Or his non-definition of society. Um, he goes on down here at the very bottom. That is to say, there is nothing under the sun. And I mean absolutely nothing. Which, in being mediated through human intelligence and human thought, is not also socially mediated. For human intelligence, it's not something given to a single human being once and for all. Intelligence and thought are imbued with the history of the whole species, and one may also say with the whole of society. And this is getting back to his critique of the Enlightenment, which uh, which I which I've called up, uh, you know, at times the cult of the individual. You know, we may think that we are unique individuals. Right, that we are our own people, that there is no one else on earth like us. And that's true, right? I read my kids these books, right, on the night you were born, right? And it's all about, it's a celebration of, of individualism, right? No one's going to be ever as special as you. And that's true, right, for me, you know, in relation to my kids, that is true. But when I want us to think about we're not... We are only our individual selves because of the society that's around us. We would not exist as individuals were it not for society. Think about like Plato and the cave, right? Um, um, the, the, uh, being stuck in the darkness without a society or any port of reference points, there would be no self. And we're going to get into this when we talk about symbolic interactionism and especially with phenomenology. Right, and here I am kind of checking off these different theoretical traditions that kind of flow out of this opening reading for this for this class. And just to give an example, he goes on to give this other example, and, and this goes back to you know thinking about this essential nature and where what sociology's role should be, right, in sort of mediating this tension between what society actually is and what society and how society represents itself. And so he's talking here about. It is that decisive discoveries in medicine. 
such as that of the cause of cancer and therefore a possible cure for cancer, would have probably been made a long time ago had not a wholly excessive amount of the social product, right? What we make as a society been spent for social reasons on weapons or space exploration, or as he calls it, the exploration of empty stars for advertising purposes. I think that that's a reference to the Apollo moon program. Uh, I think this is what, 1968. And so the moon landing was the next year. Uh, Apollo, or is Apollo 11, 1968, 1969. Right, and this is that tension that sociology should be concerning itself with, right? There's a reality that cancer is this major affliction. And at the time it was growing, right? It was, it was rates were increasing, especially in, in the Western or developed industrialized world. And this is a reality. This is how society actually is, but society is representing itself as being bolder, right? As, as reaching beyond the stars, as, um, needing to protect certain values of capitalism and democracy. Um, I'm specifically referencing the military industrial complex and, and the importance of militarism in American society more generally, right? It's all about how, how it's, it's all about a self-representation and, and sociology's job is to sort of look at that self-representation and then look at what is actually going on and looking at where these disconnects occur. And this is just one example of one of these disconnects, right? We spent all this money on the space program. We spent all this money developing supersonic bombers and, and, um, and nuclear bombs and submarines and aircraft carriers and new rifles, right? This 1968, 69, this is when the AR-15 becomes the new weapon of the U.S. Armed Forces, um, why not spend that money trying to cure cancer, right? The, and this is, and this is not what he's saying is that these there the, the, this is there are social reasons for these developments, right? And this is this is where sociology should be operating, right? Thinking about these disconnects. And so, just to start wrapping up now, I guess the next sort of obvious question to ask is, well, how do we? How can sociology uncover these disconnections? How can sociology sort of operate in this in-between space between society's self-representation and the reality of society? Well, he gives a couple examples here at the end, and he talks in particular about the work of Sigmund Freud, um, which I don't formally endorse because it's sexist, um, and also Walter Benjamin, and yeah, if you're really into hardcore cultural studies, um, you probably need to read Walter Benjamin at one point in your life, but he's not really talking about Adorno here. He's not really talking about Freud's sexism, right? This notion of penis envy. Um, he's really talking about who Freud was interested in studying, right? Not the elites, not interested in, in applying mathematical formulas to understand social behavior. He's interested in talking to people with problems or, or as, or as Freud called it, the dregs of the world of phenomena, right? Um, these little things that eat at us, right? And that determine our motivations and our behavior on an individual level and subsequently at group and, and larger group levels. And, and he also mentions here the work of Walter Benjamin, which today um, 
you know, Walter Benjamin is really considered sort of this founding thinker in terms of sociology's uh, uh, cultural thought. And Benjamin wanted to talk about things that seemed like aberrations, um, things that seemed out of the ordinary, things that would never happen regularly, right? We talk about sociology, a traditional uh, sociology is always about like, well, we need to uncover these big patterns, right? This, this sort of macro perspective. But Walter Benjamin's like, what about that one case that doesn't fit with the pattern at all? Maybe that one case, that one exception could give us more insight than our observations and, and, and data concerning the pattern itself. And, and, this is where, and this is where sociology, according to Adorno here, can, can really um, come into its own as operating in between the self-representation of society and, and the reality of society. On the other hand, these phenomena modified ideas which would otherwise have been abstractly applied to society. If I may put it rather grandly, we at the Frankfurt School are trying to achieve for neglecting concrete details in favor of these abstract ideas. Right? We don't need to think that it's more about the sort of motivations behind it. And he finally ends here with um, a short anecdote about how he's been criticized for talking about Auschwitz all the time. Of course, one of the famous concentration camps. And, and, and this is a point of personal interest for him, but also a point of scholarly interest for him too. Let me see here. While these may not be accorded the same dignity as the structural problems of society, these aberrations, these apocryphal phenomena, the exceptions to the rule, the cases that don't fit in any pattern, they're not without importance. They're important because, and I can't help saying this, after Auschwitz, and in this respect, Auschwitz is a prototype of something which has been repeated incessantly in the world since then. My goodness, we have had quite a history of genocide and ethnic cleansing and deadly racism on a global level since World War II. Have we not? Our interest in ensuring that this should never happen again. We've got to understand, understand how this one thing happened to ensure that it never happens again. Or where and when it occurs that it should be stopped. This interest ought to determine. This interest in human dignity and human life ought to determine our choice of epistemological methods and our choice of subjects to be studied, even if they appear to be social epiphenomena, even if they appear to be aberrations. I remember once being reproached by a famous social theoretician, the wife of a very famous philosopher. I think, I really think, you guys, that he is talking about Simone de Beauvoir, who was, I believe, the wife of Jean-Paul Sartre and who we'll be reading later in this class, I think, I think that's who he's gossiping about. For showing an exaggerated interest in Auschwitz and the questions related to it, it may be that the murder of six million innocent people for a deliciousory reason, uh, that of racism and white supremacy, is an epiphenomenon, is an aberration. Uh, Africana thinkers do not think this, by the way. Du Bois does not think this, by the way. Um, if you go to Black Studies, Black Studies does not think this. Black Studies thinks this is the norm in many ways. Racial violence in modernity. 
However, I would think that merely the dimension of horror attached to such an event gives it an importance that justifies the pragmatic demand that in this case should be prioritized with the aim of preventing such events. Does Auschwitz represent some essential truth about our society? A lot of people argue that it does. Just as many argue that at, at, at worst it's an aberration. And then there are people arguing out there that it never happened at all. Even if it does represent some essential truth of modern society, or is if it's an aberration, does this matter in terms of its importance as an object of study and, 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 and its importance as something that sociology should be concerned with, right? And Auschwitz here is meant to stand in not just for the horrible event that took place there, but also for the dignity of human life in general. And, and, and what's, whose side sociology should be on? Should it be on the side of the people or should it be on the side of the elites to maintain a specific social structure and a specific hierarchy and specific systems of social control? Maybe these are things you'd like to talk about in your small group meetings. We will definitely return to the, some of these talking points in our Zoom meeting on Thursday. I really just want to kind of set up some context, dive into some of the text, give you a sense of how I sort of think about it and interpret it. I will say in earlier discussions um, in classes where we've read this, we really got to this notion of a sociology of the people or a sociology for the elites. What that? What does that mean? What do we mean by the people? Who do we mean by the elites? Um, but I hope I've given you some food for thought. Please let me know if you have any questions. Um, I will send out an announcement with the link and with your small group FAQs. Hope everyone had a great weekend. Looking forward to seeing everyone and hearing about everyone's work this week. Take care. Bye-bye.